All right, so we'll be continuing in Romans, looking at um, the the passages that we've been going through. I'll be reviewing a couple of things, but I'll also um, then continue into the first commandment. And as we think about the first commandment, um, we will be considering the negative element in the sense of what's forbidden in the first commandment and how that helps to support the positive element of the command while we're to pursue the knowledge of God. So, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading Romans chapter 14. Starting at verse 19. So it'll be a relatively short section here, verses 19 the end of the chapter, and you'll want to follow on the handout because, remember, the majority text has the verses 25 through 27 there, um, and the other manuscripts, the minority of manuscripts, move it to the end of the book. So, verse 19, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Page 2 there. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You may be seated. So, reviewing the chunk, verses 19-23, we're told to pursue the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace are the keeping of the law. But our duties to each other help to make for peace. Now, that includes giving way on things that you have a right to for the sake of a weaker brother. And so, it's choosing sometimes to not exercise rights. In the context of the public government and worship of the church... It's being careful to not invent things, to add them on, besides what God has appointed, so that there is not a need to fight over tyranny. It's also being careful to do the things that God has appointed, so that there's not a need to fight over a neglect. And so, a careful study of the Word of God and its application, especially in the public sphere, so that when the church assembles, there is not an imposition on conscience or a failure to do a duty. The church can help to do those things that make for peace. Activities that make for peace include going from the more basic to the less basic. So, 
We talked about that. That means, you know, look at the Westminster Confession, for example. It has an ordering of chapters. Chapter 1 starts with, how do you know? It goes to divine revelation. It then goes to God, and then God's decrees. And then it goes toward man and what is established with man in terms of covenant, and it goes on. So we have an ordering there. The Westminster Confession gives us a great layout of the ordering of thought. We have a blessing of the work of those that have gone before us. And there's those three basic questions, right? So if you haven't memorized the three basic questions in terms of their order from more basic to less basic, then start there. How do you know? What's real? What's good? Have clear answers for those and figure out how to, when you're dealing with arguments, how to draw into those things, how to be able to connect down to those more basic questions. And as you flesh out your understanding of the system of truth, then you're able to do that more and more skillfully. The more answers that you know, that you're ready to give, the more clearly you can demonstrate them from Scripture and show the line of reasoning to be able to connect through the more formal and clear laying out, the more you can do that from your heart, the more you are able to engage well with people. And the more you can deal with the disorder of other people's souls as you talk to them. The more orderly your own thought is, the more disorderly of a person you can handle in terms of discussing with them the truths of God. And so, making for peace includes being skillful at that. The Bible uses the idea of the preaching of the word. It's the hygienic word, the word that cleans, the word that heals. And Puritans often talked of pastors as doctors of the soul. And the goal as you train to minister and bless each other, as you train to learn to serve each other, you're becoming more and more effective at giving first aid and then long-term care to the souls of others. And so your ability to be able to encourage healing of the soul and the ordering of things, you bless each other. We go through life and we see each other's injuries and we bandage each other up and we seek to encourage each other and give each other the ability to continue on. As one of our weak, if one of our knees goes weak, we help to lift up on that side and we continue forward together. So, in order to do that, right, there's the positive command to make for peace, to do the things which make for peace in order to edify, to build up. And on the other side of that, verse 20 tells us don't do the things that are contrary to that. Right? It says, do not pursue the things which destroy the work of God for the sake of food. In other words, don't pursue lesser goods in a way that destroys the work of the higher good. It is good to not enjoy lesser things that would be lawful for the good of your brother to avoid him stumbling, him doing something that would be sin because he doesn't have the faith for it. It's good to not enjoy lesser things if it causes your brother to be offended. If he sees what you're doing is sin, even though you have an actual right to do it, then that can weaken in a number of ways. It can cause offense. It can destroy peace. And so you seek to understand each other's scruples and seek to work through it, not just so you can tolerate that forever, but for the sake of coming to deeper unity. So oftentimes, the negative measures, the things to avoid blow-ups, are put into place, but there's no constructive work done. 
and it can't last forever. You can't just be around each other disagreeing forever and expect it to never blow up. What you have to do is you, you do the things to prevent a blowing up. You slow down the process of blowing up for the sake of the positive, constructive work and the goal of having greater unity in the shared knowledge of the truth. And so we are called, as it says in verse 20, sorry, verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. The things by which one may edify another. So you pursue the positive work, the building up, and you use the things that help to avoid destruction in order to avoid that work being destroyed. So imagine this. You're building a wall. Next to the wall, there is dynamite and the fuse is lit. If you can, pulling the fuse out to stop that, that would be doing the things that help to prevent destruction. If you then immediately put the dynamite back next to the wall and just leave it there, that would be unwise for the preservation of that wall. It would be very easy for somebody to put a fuse back. Somebody lit it. It would be very easy to put the fuse back and light it. Have the more thorough solution of removing the destructive thing and so that's the idea that we're called to. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of lesser things. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. So if you, if you destroy or if you act in such a way that you uh, cause destruction in another, that's contrary to the building up. But we're called to build. Now, Verse 22, back to page 2. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So even when you cannot exercise the liberty that comes from your faith because of the weaker brother, you have the benefit of the joy of a clear conscience and the expectation of the resolution of disputes for the more full and full enjoyment of liberty. Right? So that idea that you have a clear conscience and you have the expectation of resolution. Those are the things that help us to be able to keep working and to have joy in that. When something is temporary, it's easier to bear. So you go, this will be resolved. We'll work through this. That's easier to bear than if you think, this will never end. There will be strife forever on this point. No progress. Additionally, the idea of having a clear conscience Inwardly, when you have the joy of a clear conscience, it makes external suffering easier. So if you have a clear conscience and you're suffering, you're giving up a right for it, and you have the expectation of resolution, completion, those two things together make it far easier to work together for unity and to do the work that makes for peace and building up. Verse 23, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So, at the same time, until someone has proven something to you from Scripture, you are not obligated, you're not obligated to do something unless you understand that it has been revealed. Now, forgive me, that's, that's the wrong way of wording it. What I just said is false. What I just said to you is you're not obligated to do something unless you understand and believe it already. It's sin, it's sin to do something that you believe is wrong. But you always have a duty 
objectively to do what God has commanded. Okay, so is that clear, the distinction? What I said was wrong, what I said that was wrong is that you don't have a duty to do something unless you already understand and believe it. That is false. What is true is that whatever God has revealed, you have a duty to do. However, if you do something that God has objectively revealed is a duty, and you do it without faith, it's still sin. So the objective revelation of God is not sufficient for you when you do the thing to have met your duty. You have to understand it and believe it. So is that correction clear? Let me pause. Are there any voting members or um, men with speaking rights who want to see that further clarified? Mr. Nye? just wanted to make sure that, that I understand. So, if God has revealed something, and even if I don't understand and believe it, this is a hypothetical, because I don't, I don't know how much, how many uh, instances in real life, I should still do that thing, but I'm still sinning, I need to repent of my unbelief. So, so this is really a, a hypothetical. So I'm gonna, but but it would it would still you still should do that thing even though you would be sinning by not believing it. No. So if if God had revealed something objectively and you don't believe it, it's sin for you to do it. The issue is you need to believe it and then do it. It's not that you should just do it even though you don't believe. It's you should believe and then do it. Um, if there's some duty, and you both don't believe in the duty and don't perform the duty, that would be worse. That would be a more grievous sin. So it would be less grievous to be doing the thing that was objectively revealed as a duty, but to not believe, than to not do it and not believe. And so, um, but it's still not righteousness if you don't believe. It's not... That's what I was trying to say. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Okay. So... Whatever is not from faith is sin. Verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise... Be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So look at point five there on page two. The the sentence in its simplified form is this. To him be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Paul goes on like a machine gun interrupter spree. So the rat-a-tat-tat of this machine gun is first bullet. Explanation of who the him is. Well, him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ are the same thing. So that's sort of an interrupter inside of an interrupter. Okay, He's saying, him who's able to establish you according to my gospel. In other words, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then he says, 
according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. Okay, so the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret is the gospel. It's the revelation that was kept secret since when? Since the world began. And when was it not kept secret anymore? Well, now it's been made manifest. And we have on the rest of the context, when was it made manifest? Well, it's made manifest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, how, how is it made manifest? Well, by the prophetic scriptures, it's made known to all nations, not just to Israel. And so now that, that's a advancing past the gospel being given to Israel. It's being given to all nations. According to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Well, what's that explaining? That's explaining that it's been made manifest. How has it been made manifest? It's been made manifest according to the commandment of the everlasting God. And how is that done? Well, it's by the prophetic scriptures that are made known to all nations. What goal is that for? For obedience to the faith. So that's the interrupter set there. And then there's another interrupter. And the interrupter is a different way of explaining the hymn. Who's the hymn? To God. Who alone is wise. Now, the idea that he alone is wise, that right there is a very small encapsulation of what was just said before. The idea that the gospel, which is the news about how we are saved from sin and death, about Jesus' victory over Satan, over evil, over death, over unbelief. The gospel is the news about how God accomplishes the good, the mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of him. The gospel is the news about how God fulfills the mission of displaying his glory in creation. He alone is wise. He alone knows the way to get the job done. He is the only one who understands how to accomplish the good. And he can share that understanding, and he does by revealing it. And he shows us the news about what Christ has done, and he gives to us his law to show us the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is an obedience that has understanding, that believes what God has revealed, and does what God commands based upon understanding and believing the truth that God has revealed. What we have here is a restatement of the mission of God. And what we have is the idea that the prophetic scriptures will be taught to the nations and the result will be that the nations will manifest obedience to God, the obedience of faith. And so the idea that this message is glorifying to God, it's not just glorifying to God in its content, 
it's not just glorifying to God in that Paul believes it, and so the glory of God has been made known to Paul. It's not just glorifying to God in that some small portion of the world will understand and believe. This is glorifying to God in the way that the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because the nations will be given the prophetic scriptures and they will yield the obedience of faith. So that the earth will show forth the knowledge of God even down to trinkets of culture like bells on horses' reins and they will have written on them holy unto the Lord. That's the kind of manifestation of the glory of God that's being talked about. So, this self-interrupting doxology is talking about the power of God to establish. To establish who? To establish you. To establish your faith. To give you a firmness of faith. To cause you to have a firmness of action. To make you stable. To make it so that in the midst of chaos... In the midst of spiritual warfare, you can hold the line so that you don't retreat and thereby cause your neighbor to retreat. Who are the ones that tend to retreat when they see others retreat? Is it the strong or the weak? The weak. Who have we been talking about for a long time? The weak. The idea is that your obedience of faith is the manifestation of the establishing that God has done within you by the Word. And the result is that your strength helps with the weakness of your brother. That you might stand firm and that you might advance. He is able to establish. This is what was taught in the Gospel. This is what was given in the message of Jesus Christ. This is what was hidden but has been made known now to all nations. This is what was commanded by the everlasting God. This is the obedience that comes from faith. God is wise. He alone is wise. He has made this plan. He will establish this plan. Now, He does this principally with the first commandment. So go to page 3. Remember the positive element of the first commandment. The first commandment is your duty to know and acknowledge God. God is the good. We should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of God. We possess God by knowing God. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God by the means that God has appointed. So in other words, we should take in the Word. We should pray for blessing on it. We should speak the Word. And we should pray for blessing on it. That's the principal means. There are other things that God commands us to do. That's the focus here. Now, 105 talks about the negative things there. What are the things that undermine that? What are the things that work against that? What are the sticks of dynamite with lit fuses that must be removed from the wall so that we can build without destruction? 
The sins forbidden in the first commandment. The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a god, idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God. The not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things and taking them off from him in whole or in part. Vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using unlawful means, and trusting in lawful means. Carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and His commands, resisting and grieving of His Spirit, discontent and impatience at His dispensations, charging Him foolishly for the evils He inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Page 4. We talked about the first nine kind of elements of this last time briefly. And what I wanted to do for you here in talking about atheism, atheism is the denying or not having of a God, right? The denial of God. And we have to combat that in the world. Atheism is a prominent thing. We're seeing more and more. There seem to be as much perhaps as a third of the country now professing atheism. And so the inability to defend the biblical definition of God and to be able to put that forward is something that shows the weakness of the church. And so, what I want to encourage you to do is to carefully consider the importance of being able to answer objections to the definition of God. And the things that you need to be able to deal with are principally, again, the idea of what is true, what is real, what is good, and how God provides the biblical God is the only answer that allows for a coherent, meaningful answer to those questions. Now, in addition to that, one of the main points of attack is on the issue of God's sovereignty and the existence of evil. And so having a clear-cut ability to deal with predestination is the other point where you're going to find people objecting to God and saying that the God of the Bible is false or wicked or what have you. So dealing with those four questions is absolutely necessary. But the most basic of them is the question of truth. And so Aurelius Augustine's argument for God from truth, I think, is the one that is the most foundational for being able to show you have no basis to think truth or to think that there is truth apart from God. And the idea that there is no truth is absurd because then the claim that there is no truth is not true. 
right? So if that's true, it is false. And so that right there, the self-refuting nature of it, being able to deal with skepticism is key. And being able to show that that cannot be true, because if it is true, it is false. So Augustine's argument from truth, he puts forward the claim that truth is eternal. It's unchanging. He says truth must exist eternally if skepticism is false. And skepticism is false. I just showed you how and why. So to deny the existence of truth, that is, to say that it's true, that there is no truth, is to assert that truth does and must exist, right? You're, you're saying, hey, it's true that there's no truth, right? You're, you're asserting truth. So it's, it's a self-refuting position. It's absurd. It's not possible for truth to change. If truth changes, the claim that a statement like truth changes can change. If the claim, truth changes, changes, then it's no longer true that truth changes. If it is false that truth changes, then truth does not change. You cannot go from truth changes to truth doesn't change and have them both have been true at different times because if it's ever true that truth does not change, then it didn't change. So, the idea that truth is changeable is self-refuting. To deny truth's eternality, to say that it's true, the truth is not eternal, or that it will someday perish, affirms its eternal nature. Right? These are self-refuting things. If it's true, it's false. So you have to accept that truth is eternal and unchanging. Well, truth is propositional. Since truth can exist only in the form of a proposition, it must be mental. Let's, let's consider this. Let's consider the alternative briefly. If I say that truth is not propositional, I've given you a proposition that I'm asserting is true. That proposition is, truth is not propositional. If that proposition is true, then it is false. Because I've claimed now that a proposition is true that says that truth is not propositional. So, this cannot be asserted. It is self-refuting. Since truth can exist only in the form of propositions, it must be mental. In other words... It exists in the mind. But seeing that the mind of man is not eternal and unchangeable, there must be a mind superior to the mind of man, which is eternal and unchangeable, the mind of God. God, as Scripture testifies, is truth itself, and if a man knows any truth, he also knows something of God. So let's summarize. What's the summary? You are changeable, and something must be eternal or unchangeable. Otherwise, something came from nothing, or something has been around forever in time. And if something's been around forever in time, somehow we've gotten through forever and arrived at now, so we have a completion of an infinite series. And that's absurd. You cannot complete an infinite series. 
So truth is propositional. Propositions only exist in minds. Truth must be superior to your mind, since you have not been around forever. Truth must be superior to all changing minds, all temporal minds, because they haven't been around forever. Truth must be eternal. Truth must always be in a mind, because the meaning of a thing can't exist outside of the mind. You, a book doesn't understand its own meaning. The, this book right here has lots of propositions written in it in language, but it doesn't understand its own content. The meaning of it requires a mind to read it. So for propositions, for the meaning of sentences to exist, it must exist in a mind that understands. Truth must be superior to all temporal minds. Truth must be eternal. Truth must always be in a mind. Truth must be in an eternal mind. When you understand the basic claims of what truth is, and you know how to defeat the claims that try to deny basic attributes of truth, you can show how they're self-refuting. Someone can't escape the fact that there must be truth, that truth must be eternal, and that it must be in a mind. And so dealing with truth, dealing with the basic question of what is true, Dealing with the question of how one knows is the way to totally deconstruct atheism and any other skeptical claim. Now, this definition of truth, this definition of God, come from the Bible. It's provided to us, and when we have it revealed from God, we can show how it is necessary Now, if there's follow-up, if there's questions about that, please write them down. We'll talk about that more. But the next sin, the sin of idolatry, we talked about how there's two types of idolatry. There's a kind of idolatry where you worship the true God wrongly, and there's a kind of idolatry where you worship a wrong God. So what's being talked about in the first commandment is the worshiping of a wrong God. Point three, the not having or vouching Him for God and our God. We need to possess God by knowing Him. We need to see Him as having saved us and having covenanted with us so that we see Him as our God. We need to say that publicly to others. That He is God, the living and true God. And we need to claim that He is our God. And we do that in baptism. We do that in the Lord's Supper. We do that by words. We do that in the singing of psalms, we do that by acting in obedience and having the mark of God on our right hand. Those are the kinds of things that help us to avouch Him. Point four on page five. The omission or neglect of anything due to Him required in this commandment. So all the positive duties, if we fail to do those, we're breaking the first commandment. Five. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of Him. Right? So, Ignorance of God is sin. We have a duty to pursue knowledge. And so getting the knowledge of God is how you remove ignorance. Forgetfulness, where we are 
there's two ways of being forgetful. You can be forgetful in that you learn something and then forget it and can't recall it. And that occurs by not meditating on it enough after you learn it. But secondly, you can be forgetful in, in a moment, not bearing in mind the appropriate truths. So if you have some duty and you don't think about what God has commanded in that instance, you are being forgetful of God. It's interesting, you think about the fourth commandment, it says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It talks about working six days and resting one. We plan our week around the Sabbath, and when you don't think about time in terms of Sabbath, you're not going to keep the Sabbath. You are forgetful of it. Well, that's true of many other things. The forgetfulness of God would cause many other duties to be left undone, and many sins picked up. And so we must have always in the forefront of our mind God and seek to order our thoughts so that we can apply the appropriate word in due season to ourselves. So misapprehensions. We um, misunderstand God. That happens through studying partially, not pursuing something through to the completion. You get an answer and you go, yeah, okay. You don't require somebody to demonstrate it. You don't require a arguing through it. You don't require a showing across time. Uh, you don't require that of yourself. You're just reading the Bible, and you come up with some explanation for what a text means, and you go, I like that because I made it up. And you go to the next verse. That reading, you can form misapprehensions. You can form wrong understandings, poorly formed definitions. False opinions in general. Unworthy and wicked thoughts about God. Anything that's false about God is wicked. Any thought that's false about God is wicked. We talked about bold and curious searching into his secrets. We talked about divination last time, so I'll move on. All profaneness and hatred of God. Profaneness is not being holy unto God. Forgetfulness is key there. If you're not remembering God and what you're doing, then you're going to be not set apart to God in what you're doing. Being holy unto God comes down to remembering God, thinking about God, applying the Word of God to the particular situation, to the particular time. And so, if you are forgetful, you will be profane. If you are profane in your actions, you must consider carefully how much am I thinking about God and what I'm doing. The hatred of God, anytime we choose something over God, we're hating God. Right, so, but you can, you can also, in a more intense way, hate God. Martin Luther famously, as he became more and more aware of his sinfulness before he understood the gospel, he, under the yoke of Roman Catholicism, saw over and over again that he failed to repent properly, failed to keep the law perfectly, failed when he would come and confess his sins to mean it enough, consistently enough. And so, as he went through that, he found himself seeing the justice of God as a thing that brought wrath on him, and he found himself hating God. I mean, you expect things of me that I cannot do. And that temptation to hate God is most going to come in a place where we see our guilt, and we feel as though we cannot do what is right, and we feel as though we cannot remove the guilt. And so, that hatred of God is a pointer that you should ask yourself, do I understand the gospel? 
do I understand the gospel? Do I believe it? Because if you understand and believe the gospel, if you understand and believe the work that Christ did to remove the guilt of sin and to provide a righteousness that is not your own, then the hatred of God should be largely removed. That hatred of God largely flies out of a sense that God is opposed to you. And so dealing with that and understanding the mercy of God. Self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things and taking them off from Him in whole or in part. Our mind, will, and affections should be on God in whole all the time. That's the perfection of the law. That is how the law touches the spirit of man and shows that it goes to the deepest recesses of our hearts. We should always be thinking about everything in the context of God. How short do you come of that? How much does that show the failures of our own thoughts and show our guilt and our need for salvation? We are supposed to glorify God in everything. That's what that means. And if that's the case, how much sin have we been forgiven? How many thoughts not focused on God have you had? We, we, until you can figure out the division of the smallest unit of time, you won't be able to answer that. Time is not a continuous, infinitely divisible stream. If it were, then you would not be able to complete one second because you would pass through an infinite number of time points. There's some minutest division of time. And whatever that is, how many of them have been points of time where you have not been focusing your thought wholly upon God? Each of those is a sin. Each of those is a sin that was paid for entirely by Christ. Does that give you a deeper sense of my sins are without numbering? And if God should mark iniquity, who then could stand? What does his chalkboard listing my sins look like? Taking our mind, will, or affections off of God in whole or in part. So vain credulity, point nine. Vain credulity is being is believing false things, vain things, because of a willingness to believe without requiring proof. The first commandment can be talked about in a very important way by thinking about, again, the title of last week's sermon and what I've put again at the top of this handout. Whatever is not of faith is sin. If you believe something without being able to demonstrate it from the word of God, you have vain credulity. You are believing it without properly testing it. We are called to test things. We are called to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Now, unbelief is failing to believe what has been revealed. And so those are the two sides of the road you can fall off of. You can fail to believe what has been revealed, and you can believe without having been shown without searching it out without testing it 
heresy is propounding false doctrine. Now, in general, any false doctrine is heresy. Everybody likes to use the word heresy to specifically refer to damnable heresy. You say the word heresy and people, you know, the hair on their neck rises. They go, whoa, what are we talking about here? You, you call somebody a heretic and it has about the same effect as though you shot at them and missed. And that's generally the feeling that people seem to have. This is how they react to me. Damnable heresy is heresy, a false doctrine that, if believed, a person would go to hell. Because the idea would be that you're believing this thing and it contradicts the gospel directly. Now, there's general heresy. Any false doctrine is heresy. Any false doctrine is heresy. Now, in a certain way, any false doctrine ultimately is damnable. What do I mean by that? If you reject the authority of the word of God, then you don't have a saving faith. Because a saving faith believes the word of God and specifically believes what Jesus did to pay for our sins and to provide us with a righteousness that is not our own. Okay? So, if you reject something that's taught in the word of God and ultimately reject the authority of the word of God, that right there, that's not a saving faith if you've rejected the word of God as the authority. And so what happens when somebody rejects some point of doctrine that they don't like and they don't have a saving faith but they have a profession of the true gospel, what happens is that point of error becomes a cancerous, gangrenous point where the rest of their profession begins to decay because they start to see ways in which the false doctrine they believe contradicts the true gospel and they start to reject pieces more and more and so oftentimes you'll see someone reject Calvinism and go into Arminianism and then go into deism there's an open theism was a heresy that's just deism just God not controlling stuff ultimately. And so this idea of a false doctrine that leads to other false doctrines, you can see that in that kind of extreme way, but it manifests itself in lesser ways. So every time you believe something that's false and you teach it to other people, that's a formal heresy. It's the external form of an opposition to the authority of the word of God. When you see how that false doctrine is not actually what God teaches, and when you see how it contradicts the gospel itself, that becomes a material heresy. In other words, you have a damnable heresy that you believe. Once you've seen how it contradicts the gospel, and you believe that false thing as opposed to the gospel. So, when we talk about heresy, it is important to be able to differentiate between false doctrine in general and damnable heresy. And the idea of a formal heresy versus a material heresy, I hope that's helpful for the discussion. But, but here's, the, here's the general problem. The general problem is this. We tend, to not, we tend to not deal with false doctrine as important. We tend to not deal with false doctrine when we confront it in other people. We tend to back away. And we go, this is not essential, this is not the essential thing, this is whatever. We can sometimes even use more basic to less basic to never engage on a thing, right? And so if that happens, what we're doing is we are minimizing the importance of truth. 
And when we realize that all error at heart is heresy and denial of the authority of the Word of God, we see how false doctrine must be dealt with. And the question is the order. And so when you see in yourself a place where you do not understand or cannot prove, that is a place that is important to deal with in your own life. Questions of things that you don't know, when you find out you don't know or you can't prove some point of doctrine, that should be an urgent matter to you. Where you go, how can I figure this out? And one of the glorious things is we have morning and evening worship in our daily lives that we can use. And so you can use your private worship to go search out the things that you're trying to figure out. But you can also use additional free time. But every day is a day where there is a time set apart for the study of God's Word. And we, you know, it's good to have an orderly reading plan. But I'll tell you what, if you have some point of doctrine that you don't know how to deal with, stop your orderly reading plan. And go figure that thing out. Because that is a thing that is a danger for you. It is a place where the wall has collapsed. Where the enemy, if it attacks and presses in hard, will take the city. When you have a point of doctrine and you don't know how to deal with it, chase it down. Because it is a danger to you. Misbelief. Belief of any error. It's a sin. Point ten. Using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means. Right? We are all tempted to pragmatism. We are all tempted to try to accomplish goals by doing things that are not lawful. That's what pragmatism is. The desire to get the result by whatever means. To do what works. It is a lie. It is foolish. It is stupid. The law of God is the almighty, all-knowing God of the universe. The eternal truth of the eternal God. And it tells us the means to use to accomplish the goal. Pragmatism is superstition. It is believing falsehood, thinking that we can do other things to accomplish the goals that God has given beside what God has commanded. When you do that, you are not much better, friend, than a magician who thinks that by powers apart from God, you can conjure up the results that you want using the means that God has not given. You might as well end your effort with the words hocus-pocus. There is little difference. Trusting in lawful means. Viewing the performance of the law of God as mechanistic or magical. That it will of its own power bring things about. We have to pray for God's blessing and rely upon God to powerfully work. You think, I need to provide for myself, so you go and work. Great. You cannot guarantee the harvest. You think, I want to get a good reputation, so I'm going to be careful about what I say. I'm going to speak slowly. I'm going to speak well of others. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do all of these things that tend toward good reputation that will not guarantee you a reputation. You cannot bring about the good fruit by the lawful means of your own power. We cannot trust in lawful means. Looking at God's law and looking at the general promises of the word about what will come from applying God's law and thinking that's always going to happen is trusting in lawful means. There are martyrs. The world did not become all of a sudden properly Christianized while Jesus walked the earth. The apostles, in their faithfulness, did not bring about 
an instantaneous Christianizing of the world. Our faithfulness does not have a mechanistic or magical, immediate completing of things. The preaching of the word does not necessarily convert people and it does not necessarily sanctify converted people. It is possible for me to preach an excellent sermon at every point and for none of you to be sanctified at all by it. Prayer on the preaching of the word. Prayer on the application of the law. We are told about prophets that visited Israel, that the people applauded at the preaching of the word and left and changed nothing. We have to rely upon God to use the lawful means and to not trust that the lawful means by themselves have the power to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. If we pursue fleshly or carnal delights and joys as opposed to the spiritual delights and joys, the things that are commanded of us, the things we're told to delight in, if we delight in things that we ought not, that is a sin against God because rather than delighting in God, we are delighting in those things. We make them our gods. So how many pleasure-seeking sins come out of that? Right? That's coming from a false belief about what is ultimately your good. I have found in seeking to overcome, for example, overeating, I have found that plainly saying to myself, food is not the good, is sometimes helpful for me to just not eat something that I shouldn't eat. The, there's this lie that this thing will comfort me, this thing will be pleasing, this thing will help me. I'm stressed and I need this thing. Right? There's a lie there. And if you, you can lawfully use things in moderation, and they are used for our comfort, but when we make those delights or joys into a goal, they lose their lawfulness. And we make them into our gods. Corruption, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. Okay, what's zeal? Zeal is an eagerness of desire to obtain some purpose or object. What's corrupt zeal? Corrupt zeal is a desire that is directed by lies. It's a desire that is directed by lies. What is a blind zeal? A blind zeal is a desire that has not been analyzed. It is when you have a desire and you have not considered whether it is good to pursue. An indiscreet zeal is a desire that could even be lawful, but is not pursued by the right means. An indiscreet zeal manifests itself in pragmatism. Doing what works to get the thing done. As opposed to doing what God has commanded in the pursuit of a good goal. Lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. Lukewarmness, we often think about lukewarmness, and there's this weird thing that's come up in evangelicalism where lukewarmness means, well, you know, you could be really cold against God, like, you know, really hardened. And you could be hot for God. You could just be like, look how zealous I am for God. But having less than the full amount of zeal, that's lukewarmness. You're not real excited about God or whatever. You have faith, but it's not, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot of zeal there. 
that comes from the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And what happens is we talk about lukewarmness and we think about that as you know, being kind of zealous but not zealous enough. That is not what lukewarmness is in the scriptures. In the letters to the seven churches, the church that is talked about is a church that has hot springs and cold springs. And water that's lukewarm, also known as room temperature, is found everywhere. The special waters, the useful waters, the waters that have more usefulness than room temperature water, are hot or cold. It requires special action to keep it cold, and special action to make it hot. The danger is in having no particular usefulness. It is a violation of the first commandment to live a useless life. It is a violation of the first commandment to not take the spiritual gifts you've been given and put them to profitable employment. Lukewarmness is uselessness. If you are living a lukewarm life, you are living a useless life. And I would posit to you that if there are 30 million evangelicals in America, at least 29 million of them are living useless lives, or the world would be turned upside down. If there were 30 million Christians in America seeking to live useful, God-honoring lives, aggressively applying the gifts of the Spirit to accomplish things, we would not look like we look right now. Lukewarmness is the sin of the church in America. It is uselessness. Now, a deadness in the things of God is not pursuing the things of God. It is not caring about the things of God. And that could be sort of similar to what people normally mean by lukewarmness. But lukewarmness is uselessness. And deadness in the things of God is not pursuing Him. Acting like a dead person. Acting like a person who hasn't been given spiritual life and therefore not pursuing the knowledge of God. Now, we are called to not estrange ourselves from God or to apostatize from Him. Apostatizing has to do with changing your profession. If you apostatize, you stop professing the religion. I remember, in particular in college, interacting with a number of people who would secretly tell me they were Christian, but were unwilling to make it known that they were some of them in philosophy departments that were concerned about if they announced that they were Christian, that it would harm their prospects of getting to grad school or some other nonsense. That is apostasy. An unwillingness to avouch the true religion, an unwillingness to be publicly marked with Christianity, is apostasy. Now, there's other types of apostasy where you profess some other doctrine and thereby are no longer professing the true religion. But estranging ourselves from God is living in such a way as to be removed from blessing. It's, it's separating from the church, separating from the means of grace, separating from the things that are the lawful means to grow in the knowledge of God. Point 15. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. Right? Think about this. There are, we're called to do everything to the glory of God, but there are some things that we can only do directly to God. 
We're called to do everything for the glory of God, but there are some things that we can only do directly to God. If you want to deny a distinction between worship and the general duty to glorify God, then you're not going to know which things you can only direct at God. And so, we are only to pray to God and not give any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. And so, the second commandment is about which actions are the acts of worship. This requires us to know acts that should only be performed toward God. Worship versus the general duty to glorify God in all things. 16. All compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions. So we're not supposed to covenant with the wrong party. Don't form covenants. Don't be un- unequally yoked. Only be covenanted with God and the people of God. Getting or seeking counsel from the wrong party, like the devil. Listening to the counsel of the wrong party like the devil. Now, there's a forbidding of divination before the, the curious prying into the secrets of God. When you seek to do that, what's happening is you are unwittingly seeking the counsel of demons. If you go to a tarot card reader or an astrologer or whatever, you read the horoscope, you whatever, that person is either a witting servant of the devil or an unwitting servant of the devil. If they are unwitting, it is they think they're so clever. Look at me. I'm making stuff up and selling it to people who think this is real. And they are using their gifting to serve Satan, to give false views of things to people who are vainly credulous. Now, if they know that they are serving some spirit than God, then that servant is a more terrifying thing. That servant is in compact with the devil. And so, the more dangerous tarot card readers and palm readers and what have you, the more dangerous ones are the ones who believe what they're saying. Because they know they're communicating with some spirit. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience. This is another type of listening to the wrong party. We are to have one rule of faith and one rule of practice. How can we do that without making men the lords of our conscience? We'd have one rule of faith and one rule of practice. And we're supposed to do that to the point that's been attained to. Attained to by whom? God doesn't attain to anything. God had all of the knowledge. He already had the rule of faith and the rule of practice. The church attains to a certain point. It gets to a point of progress. And we're supposed to hold people accountable to the point of progress that's been reached. So how do we deal with historic Christianity and church officers and councils and confessions of faith and canons of the church in light of the fact that we're not to make men the lords of our faith and conscience? You require that what has been propounded historically, what's put forward in a confession, what's laid out in a canon, you require that that thing be proven. And that's how you hold men accountable and don't let men be the lords of your conscience. And so those things are extremely helpful in that somebody is showing you, here's the doctrine, and then you say, prove it to me, show me, and then you search the scriptures to see if these things are so. They do not have authority in themselves. The sliding and despising of God and his commandments. Uh, paying, we have an obligation to pay heed to the right party. To obey the counsel of the right party. And to covenant with the right party. 
So there's a failure to do that that can lead to destruction. 19. Resisting and grieving of the Spirit of God, discontent and impatience at His dispensations, charging Him foolishly for the evils He inflicts on us. So we can resist the prompting of conscience and the external callbacks that God brings us. That's resisting the Spirit. That's grieving the Spirit. The grieving of the Spirit is not something that means that the Spirit is suffering. We are doing something that is grievous in His sight. That's the idea. Now, this also does not mean that that grace is resistible. God does what He pleases. But the idea here is that we, as God has planned sin and he does that for the purpose of showing us our need more deeply and helping us to rely upon him more fully discontent with god is a rejecting of god as the good impatience with god in the midst of suffering is not trusting him while we suffer and foolishly charging god for evils that he inflicts is viewing him as somehow being evil for bringing us pain 20 Ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. So praising ourselves, saying that power is sourced in ourselves, relying on ourselves in the context of God, not other people. Right? You should rely on yourself rather than other people. But relying upon yourself rather than God is sin. And so we should be careful to not wrongly praise or admire or trust in creatures in general. And... Calvin explains excellently in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and as is pointed out here in the Westminster Larger Catechism, we should not say that was fortunate, or luckily this thing happened, but rather we should ascribe things to God and give thanks to Him and say thankfully, or perhaps when something is bad, say regrettably. We should be careful to not attribute things to fortune or luck, not to attribute them to idols or any other sort of magical thing. The carrying about of things like rabbit's foot or other things that you view as lucky charms are a violation of the law of God. And so we're called to remember that God sees all things, takes special note of what we view as most valuable, and he encourages us to avoid provoking him by valuing something above himself. God encourages us to, to do all things to his service, knowing that he is present with us and sees all things, even our inmost thoughts. He owns these thoughts and has a right to see, to see them ordered correctly, to see them focused upon him. And that is how we pursue our own good. The comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, um, I wanted to bring a couple of quick things. So, um, with your comments about Laodicea uh, yes. with the water, I know that this isn't in Scripture, so I, I want to be careful here, so this isn't truth, but um, in terms of the water, Laodicea um, did not have hot or cold water that had the aqueduct water, which was a lukewarm water. It was Hierapolis that had the hot water, which was neighboring, and then also Colossae, which is also neighboring, and that had the cold water. Uh, so I just wanted to say that. Again, we don't know if that's truth or not. I just wanted to state that. Um, and then, real quick, uh, could you define formal heresy? Uh, yeah, formal heresy is anything that's contrary to the Word of God. Okay. 
So formal heresy is damnable in the sense that, like, if we, um, by, by doing that, we are rejecting the authority of, of Scripture. We're not believing what Scripture is teaching. Yeah, so any error is formal heresy. Okay. Once you see that it contradicts the Word of God, and if you continue to believe it, even though you reject the Word of God, that would mean that you don't actually believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. So that's the sense in which formal heresy is damnable. Right, so that's when it's it's material heresy when you're when you see how it is contrary to the word of God, or when you see how it contradicts the gospel, you have become a dam- you're you're a damnable heretic at that point. But nobody can nobody can see that. Yeah, I can't read your heart. Uh-huh. So whatever false doctrine you propound with your mouth, I don't know what you believe, even if it seems really clear. Right, so. I can never tell what you actually believe, no matter what you say. Okay, so formal heresy in and of itself isn't necessarily um, damnable heresy. It's when it jumps over into material heresy that becomes damnable. So, so yeah, formal heresy is any is the preaching of any error. Yeah. Material heresy is is the preaching of damnable error. Uh-huh. Okay, and what you believe is 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 a different matter, and if you believe material heresy, you have a damnable error in your heart. And any, her- any error, if it, sh- if it ultimately turns into the rejection of the authority of the word of God, is now material heresy. Okay. That's the, that's the idea. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hey. Mr. Marsh? Thanks for your teaching. Um, you mentioned... Uh, Great question. Thank you very much. Sorry for not touching on that. Um, so self-love, when it is sinful, is valuing self above God. So it's a, wrong, it's a wrong view of the comparative relationship of yourself to God. Proper self-love is pursuing your own good and pursuing the good of knowing God. Right. So when you know God, you're pursuing your own interest. So enlightened self-love is that. A darkened self-love is the putting of self over God. And so ultimately all sin is in some sense that sinful self-love where we are choosing to be a law unto ourselves rather than obeying the law of God. And so hopefully that makes that clear. Thank you for asking. Anything you'd want to add to that? Thank you. Mr. Courtney. Uh, it is uh, biblical, like you believe, um, that the diviners and the witches and all that... Uh, that um, should be executed, right? So the, the scriptures clearly lay out that the um, that divination, witchcraft, those things, those are capital crimes. Good. Okay. Thank you. Alright. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the preaching of your word. We thank you for the text of scripture. We thank you for the first commandment and the work that the Westminster Assembly did in pulling together the various commandments associated with the first commandment. 
We ask that you would help us to seek the knowledge of you and to put off all things that we value more than you, that you would help us to rightly value you, to rightly see you, to seek the knowledge of you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.